0: Welcome to an hour of spiritual focus and finding center. Today, a live BYU forum broadcast with Chaplain and Lecturer Rev. Dr. Andrew Teal. The forum originates from the Marriott Center on the BYU campus. Good morning and welcome to our forum assembly. I'm Shane Reese and I serve as BYU's academic vice president. Today we are pleased to welcome Rev. Dr. Andrew Teal who will be addressing us on this year's forum theme, Building a Beloved Community. Rev. Dr. Andrew Teal is a chaplain and fellow at Pembroke College and lecturer in theology and religion at Oxford University. He is the Warden of the Community of the Sisters of the Love of God, Convent of the Incarnation. He was ordained in the Church of England at the age of 23 and worked as a parish priest in deprived inner-city communities in the West Midlands and Sheffield. He earned his doctoral degree from the University of Birmingham. Dr. Thiel has widely published in the UK and Europe in English and Russian on patristic and modern theology. Among his recent publications is Inspiring Service—Catholic, Anglican, Methodist and Latter-day Saint Traditions in Dialogue, published in 2020, in which he collaborated with various religious leaders, including Elder Jeffrey R. Holland of the Quorum of the Twelve Apostles. Rev. Thiel joined the byu Neil A. Maxwell Institute this semester as a visiting resident scholar and affiliate faculty member. His personal mission is, in his own words, to encourage each person to inhabit their life and faith with integrity, openness, and joy. Close quote. He feels a personal solidarity with those with the least resources or choices and desires to nurture the finest minds to direct their achievements to service. Reverend Teal and his wife, Rachel Teal, have been married for 30 years and are the parents of two children, Luke and Kiara. One of Reverend Teal's fondest childhood memories is walking with his Scots collie dog. His favorite quote is from St. Benedict, "...every day we begin again." As one of the leading figures in interfaith relations, Rev. Thiel's work with Elder Jeffrey R. Holland and other religious leaders aims to build a community of faith, faith understanding, and service across nations and communities. He related that Elder Jeffrey R. Holland has changed the way he views life because of his "...authentic, overflowing love." The following video shares a glimpse of the efforts of scholars and religious leaders engaged in building a beloved community.
1: As the oldest English-speaking university in the world, the University of Oxford enjoys a rich religious heritage. Theology was first taught here over 800 years ago, and the institution has been printing Bibles for many centuries. A modern-day apostle, Elder Jeffrey R. Holland, recently addressed the Oxford Theology faculty. He explained to scholars and theologians how the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints regards the Book of Mormon as another testament of Jesus Christ.
2: Coupled with the Holy Bible, there's no document more powerful than the Book of Mormon as evidence of God's continuing loving voice and as a witness of the divinity of the Lord Jesus Christ. They can't know really about us without knowing the Book of Mormon. So I'm very anxious for people to read it. I was touched that uh, so many were in attendance. A number were, of course, theology faculty and theology students. The fact that it was Oxford is no small matter. That made it uh, doubly nice.
1: Elder Holland also joined a distinguished panel of experts who expressed their views on how Christian doctrine can be translated into Christian practice as we serve one another.
2: These are they who serve the hungry, the thirsty, the naked, the homeless, and those who were sick or in prison or in pain. They do all of this after the pattern and in the spirit of him who said, in as much as you've done it, unto one of the least of these, my brethren, you have done it unto me.
3: It was great to have somebody from the Quorum of the Twelve Apostles right in our midst to be able to to model that, that sense of uh, energy and immediacy and joy and accessibility and a determination to understand and, and to engage. It was very refreshing indeed.
1: Panelists included Lord Rowan Williams, the former Archbishop of Canterbury and a prominent leader in the Anglican community. Above all, Christian service means
3: honouring the image of God in, in the other, the human other, but also in the whole world, giving to it the kind of loving
1: attention that God gives to what God has made. Elder Holland also met together with other worshippers at Oxford University's historic Pembroke Chapel to herald the start of the Christmas season and to reflect on how we can invite Jesus Christ to guide our lives.
2: The carols and the scriptures would be beautiful and rewarding anywhere, but to uh, have that opportunity at Oxford reminds us of the inseparable link between religion and education and that was really captured I think in the uh, in the Christmas festival the true meaning the unique joyous meaning of the birth of this baby was not confined to those first hours in Bethlehem but would be realized in the life he would lead and in his death in his triumphant atoning sacrifice and in his prison-bursting resurrection. These are the realities that make Christmas joyful.
0: We are honored to have Rev. Dr. Andrew Teal with us today. Please join me in extending a warm welcome to Rev. Dr. Teal.
3: Thank you for that generous presentation and kind introduction and not least the film uh, from my beloved Damon Wells Chapel in Pembroke College, named after a generous and gracious gentleman who not only restored the chapel and supported it but also endowed the chaplaincy and the chaplain. Damon uh, Wells died last week in Houston in Texas. And it's nice to start off by seeing how overlapping we are with those great people of faith. May he rest in peace and rise in glory. It's a great privilege, a real privilege to stand here before you in all your verdant strength of youth and to be able to reflect with you what it means for us to strive to build a beloved community. Last month, Martin Luther King III introduced this series of fora, reflecting upon how we might better become a beloved community. I need to start with a short introductory thanks to all who have made this possible in difficult circumstances. My time at BYU had an rather unexpected start, and I'll come back to that a bit later. But it's appropriate today for me to ask myself, how do I feel? And what's my responsibility in talking to you, my dear friends, in whose debt I will ever be? Well, how do I feel? A little overwhelmed, I guess, but immensely grateful. And what's my responsibility? Well, I think I need to start to av- with beginning by avoiding any temptation to say things so that you might love or like me. Of course, we need to be loved. We need to be understood. But actually, what a dreadfully self-centered way of viewing things of this time together that would be. And of course, I own up. I want you to like me because a lot of you can run a lot faster than I can at the moment. But my real obligation is that I express my love for you. In 2 Nephi 1.25, a text that has lodged in my heart since I first read it, it is clear that the Book of Mormon's testimony to the truth of Jesus Christ is not manipulation, nor the desire to take power and authority over others, but to see and celebrate the glory of God in service and love. You will remember that Father Lehi tries his hardest always to reconcile his feuding sons. He wants them to see the truth and to appreciate God's work in each other. He confronts his rebellious sons for accusing Nephi of seeking power and authority over them. He says... I know that he had not sought for power nor authority over you, but he hath sought the glory of God and your own eternal welfare. I go so far as to ask the Lord to stay my lips if I veer into manipulation or self-interest, rather than offer words of mission and love. So where do we start? think, first of all, with the wonder that we are already called into being as a beloved community. We are all beloved now, no exceptions. The Lord has called us together because He simply can't take His eyes off us in His love. So we need to reflect that wonder. We need to show that whoever somebody is, whatever their color, creed, background, gender, sexual orientation, you name it, the Lord loves you. That is the baseline. We don't have to build that. That is the fact. Sometimes in our past. As religious communities of various hues, we have been too quick to speak, too eager to judge, too slow to listen and communicate the Lord's love. We speak today of a cancel culture, deliberately demonizing and diminishing those with whom we disagree. But some of our different religious communities' approaches to minorities or to powerless people have indeed nurtured this response. So we have to listen and learn and love. Then we will also find that it is necessary that a beloved community has boundaries and norms and expectations. No one should be hurt or damaged on the Lord's holy mountain. There cannot be exploitation. We cannot seek to exploit the vulnerable or collude with oppression or unkindness. We must especially safeguard the most vulnerable, those who need our help the most. The Roman Catholic community in the United States, in Ireland, France, and the UK, along with Anglicans in the UK and worldwide too, has betrayed sacred trusts much to our shame. So being a beloved community is also necessarily building a beloved community which is safe, being near enough to be trusted, but far enough ahead to be worth following, listening, and being accountable. That is also countercultural. You'll remember King Benjamin purged contention from the land according to the book of Mosiah, inspiring us to have a mind not to injure one another but to live peaceably, pitching our tents towards the holiness of God and his temple, peaceably using our agency. So being a beloved community means daily beginning again at building this beloved community. And that's hard. Every day to begin again, as the rule of St. Benedict has it. Most of us want certainty. We even look to Scripture, particularly those of us from Protestant or Catholic traditions to offer us a guarantee that we're in, they're out. And even within The Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints, some people can veer away from some of the consequences of being a restored Church with a living prophet and don't want to face the difficulty of negotiating change. That's not new, of course. Think about those two declarations at the end of the Doctrine and Covenants, how they reflect great trauma and the prophetic task of the pastoral care of people facing radical changes concerning plural marriage or race and the priesthood. But change and pastoral support are there. Facing change together is core to this Church. I'm sure you've seen some stuff on the internet which is aimed against the leadership of the churches, based on longing for a safe ground. There are some very antagonistic American Roman Catholic series of broadcasts which attack Pope Francis and the Catholic bishops. There are also very angry Anglican and Methodist broadcasts because the internet has democratized dissent. But I'm not sure which is most damaging to The Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. Antagonistic websites from without, which can often be seen to be the product of damaged or immature people, or websites which seek to defend a perceived traditional Latter-day Saint series of values, and we can find some, email, uh, some um, websites attacking BYU or even policies and leaders in the church. It can feel a very popular thing to play to a perceived audience and think that we're doing good. But whatever our religious tradition, I think we have a very serious challenge to face. There may well be freedom of speech in the United States, which, by the way, is very different from how those words would be interpreted in the United Kingdom. There it's actually quite superficial, but altogether more polite. (laughs) But beware, if we start to become antagonistic and contentious I was going to say perhaps we have to reflect, but there's no perhaps about it. We must reflect seriously on how it is to, when we start to play to our own prejudices. Because above all, if we become the accuser of our brothers and sisters, even calling members of this university with whom we disagree apostate, here's a simple test question. In all that we do, are we being an advocate for our brothers and sisters and for the truth? Or have we fallen into the role and nature of the accuser? Remember that our Lord is always the advocate. It is our enemy who is ever our accuser. We do live in very contentious times, And so our task to all who come to this beautiful community of BYU, to students and staff and visitors alike, is to say unashamedly, we see you, we love you, and we will travel with you together into God's perfect kingdom. At Chicago airport I had a flight transfer, and two other passengers were sitting there and asked me what on earth I was going to do in Salt Lake City. I tried to explain, and then in beautifully simple language one woman looked me in the eye and said, well then, you have to listen as hard as you can to learn as much as you can that you may love completely. I think that wonderful woman was not far from the foundations of how we begin to build a beloved community. We see you. We will learn to see ourselves with you. And together we will face the whole host of difficulties rooted in our history and prejudices and in our own confusion. In January of 2020, at Oxford First Ward, uh, I spoke in a testimony meeting and read and signed, in the presence of the congregation, BYU's contract about the honour code based on the word of wisdom, the nearest thing to a covenant I could make with this church. But then, of course, Covid came, and this visit was postponed. I had to decide whether or not I kept those covenantal promises made in front of God's people. And in fact, because I'd done that, there was no hesitation. In fact, it was a wonderful antidote to the culture of wanting to be exempt. It's not conformity to rules, but it's me saying yes to the possibility of not reaching out my hand for that which isn't right. It's yes to standing in absolute solidarity with the addict, with people who are taken in and who are financially stretched by the abuse of alcohol and tobacco, coffee and even tea. It is possible not to reach out one's hand to take for oneself, but rather to stand mindfully in solidarity with those who cannot easily make those decisions. I began to see, as an outsider, of course, that the Word of Wisdom is a tremendous resource for sanctification, countering a conformity with destruction and the cancelling of others. I am glad that I had the time, because of COVID, to practice that at home, and to begin to understand it more before I came here. Now, of course, some Christians would describe that sort of covenant and choice as a kind of works righteousness. Jean Calvin remoulds the words of Saints Augustine and Saint Paul um, and might insist that we can add nothing to what God in Christ has already done for us, and any attempt to do so is the superfluity of naughtiness. I've found, in fact, that it's been the unleashing of grace. One early Christian writer, St. Clement of Rome, writing to the church in Corinth, uses a peculiar word, which I believe connects with this faithful exercise of agency. The word is often translated sojourning. I think you pronounce it sojourning, but you know what I mean. I hope, the first epistle of Peter speaks of Christian experience as passing the time of our sojourning. In other words, the early Christian community realized that there was a significant difference in the quality of time and space offered in Jesus Christ to that which was on offer in the empire. Rowan Williams, whom you've just heard on the film, noticed that the words around paroikusa become the basis of the English word parish or region. Early Christian understanding of time and space echoes with what other centuries later will claim in words like, this is the place, this is our time. Sojourning doesn't just mean waiting for the apocalypse to come. It means to claim this time by the power of and in the service of our Lord Jesus Christ. Not just kicking our heels as if we are waiting to be entertained, waiting with boredom for the exciting apocalypse to come, but rather finding a way of making every moment a means to invite all people, into the deepest truths of their lives, into a beloved community which takes even our inadequate energies and gifts and builds of them a kingdom with Christ. This Italian Roman Catholic theologian and philosopher, Rorio Agamben, in a very small book, The Church and the Kingdom, offers a story that, in this setting, you may not find very surprising. He says, The initial Christian community, expecting as it did the imminent arrival of the Messiah and thus the end of time, found itself confronted with an inexplicable delay. In response to this delay, there was a reorientation to stabilize the institution and juridical organization of the early Church. The consequence of this position is that the Christian community has ceased to sojourn as a foreigner so as to begin to live as a citizen and thus function like any other worldly institution. I love the fact that this comes from a scholarly Catholic background a recognition that the gospel is so often traded for Churchianity. And I think of the explosion of delight and joy at the first vision of Joseph Smith, Jr. Even as it unfurls in layers of unexpected opposition, the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints is always urged to recover that first love, the urgency of mission which I have found in this community, both here in Utah and especially in the England-London mission in the United Kingdom. It is the anxious engagement to make every moment a gate through which the Messiah can come and bring us home. I hope what I am trying to say is that looking together across perceived boundaries, which are usually quite watertight, can open our understanding, deepen our faith and our humanity. Scholarship need not and must not lead to cynicism. Rather it is an opportunity to become friends and to discuss things like grown-ups. Let me take you on another historical example from the fourth century, an area I am supposed to know something about. The 4th and 5th centuries really wrestled hard to try to find a language of greatest scope to describe the nature of the persons Father, Son, Holy Spirit, as well as the nature and the work of Jesus Christ. There was a notorious priest in the early Church who became a point of contention. His name was Arius, about 250 to 336 AD. And among other things, he was very biblical indeed. He emphasized the singularity of God to the point that only the Father was really God. Jesus was really the first creature, a natural mediator between the created and the eternal. Arius objected very strongly to images of God which depended upon mystery and which asked human arguments to take a back seat. That's a big irony here, of course. The reaction to Arius was, I believe, an attempt to say, anything that we can think about God isn't anywhere near as significant as what God has shown Himself to be. The Eternal Father, the Only Begotten Son, the Holy Spirit. That, I believe, is how creedal language about the Trinity began. At its best, language about the Trinity isn't a definition of God, how can that be? But it was an attempt at authentic description. And yet, as we know in the spiritual civil wars of the fourth century, our universal human instinct to put everything in a box. So that we could control even the idea of God, reemerged. Salvation was construed in what we call the Athanasian Creed. Footnote: Neither a creed nor by St. Athanasius, but you know, it's not what it says on the lid. But never mind. The Athanasian Creed urges compliance to a series of assertions, which faith it says, except everyone do keep whole and undefiled, without doubt he shall perish everlastingly. How on earth did that happen? From trying to say, don't try to box God in, to making it this prescription. It prescribed salvation by compliance to this idea. Sure, it tries to sustain a sense of mystery, but it does this by saying something apparently then denying it and then reasserting it, leaving the reader dizzy. It implies to have found an absolute formula for God, which is ironically the very opposite of what the creeds were trying to do. My experience with the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints has meant that for me even some of the most beautiful Eastern Orthodox prayers Now make me stop and ponder, if they address prayer not to the persons of the Father, the Son and the Holy Spirit, but to an idea of the Trinity. I am a Nicene Christian, but one who doesn't worship a human idea, however clever or pleasing. I don't think that the notion of the Holy Trinity is a sort of quadratic equation. Which holds together the three persons in a singular divinity. And I have to say something quite controversial now. I don't know whether you like this bit, I might have to run. <laughs> I do not know of a church that rigorously addresses the persons of Father, Son, and Holy Spirit more than this church, more than the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter day Saints. Ironically, you're more Trinitarian than the Trinitarian Church is. <laughs> so, to share this in an academic and interreligious context, so that we may understand one another and push more further into the beautiful mystery of God, well, that has to be our desire, and that is building a beloved community. You may have heard of other divisions around the creeds, how churches fragmented, arguing whether or not the Spirit. Proceeded from the Father and the Son, or just the Father alone, and the East and the West now have different Nicene creeds. Shared scholarship beyond simply the East and the West of the old churches, beyond Orthodox Catholic and Reformed, which includes also the insights of the restored Church, will help us all. I profoundly believe that scholarship can help us reach beyond factionalism and beyond brittle apologetic. The basis of this – friendship, commitment, trust and truth. So can we look upon each other as the Lord looks upon us? He longs for us in love, but he doesn't leave us where we first begin. True friendship asks all sorts of questions—questions we don't yet know the answers to. I trust and love you, and I want to ask a lifetime of questions as I travel alongside you with a longing heart, bringing others, beautiful people, from my own and other religious communities along with me, so that they can find and share Something of the richness, the kindness, the truthfulness that has overwhelmed me in this place and in this church. I was sitting in a beautiful house opposite the Marriott Centre where I now live. Pop in and say hi, but don't come all at once. (laughs) One sunny fall day, I was praying and reading section 136 of Doctrine and Covenants. It made me weep with joy. President Brigham Young, at Winter Quarters, Omaha Nation on the west bank of the Missouri River, writes after the martyrdom of Brother Joseph. The word and will of the Lord concerning the camp of Israel in their journeyings to the west. Let all the people. Of the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter day Saints and those who journey with them be organized into companies. Those six short words, and those who journey with them, were like a fountain of truth and trust. I sat knowing that this scripture was another testimony of Jesus Christ in this new world. After all that had happened unexpectedly, crowning as it were the massive kindnesses overwhelming me, travelling alongside this restored Church means being a part of a fluid and happy, repentant community. Constantly delighted by the wonder of that invitation, not only to know ourselves as loved I am a child of God, as you sing. That's a dignity that nothing temporal can ever take away. But to continue becoming and building up one another in love, not being afraid to keep on growing. When I first came over to Utah, around four years ago now, there was a sense of excitement at President Russell M. Nelson's insistence that the Church relinquished its shorthand self-description as Mormon and was to rely instead upon what the scriptures of this Church use. The Church, first of all Ecclesia, called out from collusion and convention to grinding monotony into God's own life and being. Then naming the Lord Jesus Christ. Moving away from cultural identity alone, not just funeral potatoes and green jello. (laughs) Moving to universal and eternal identity, that of belonging to the only name under heaven, conveying health and salvation. Then That we are in the latter days, not the institutional continuity of chronological time, but kairos, the option of moving everything to enable all souls to enter the kingdom. And finally, saints, with holiness in our hearts and holiness unto the Lord. Initially, I thought, why use all these words when the singular word Mormon might do? But now I see just how sloppy that would be and the wisdom of that revelation to President Nelson. So I have to tell you, my friends, that I think my life's direction has been heading here even if I didn't know it. God's not an autocrat or tyrant. And he invites our collaboration, individual and joint agency, at every turn. There's a real possibility of greater unity between our churches. It'll be a steep path. And between our academies, as we're beginning to explore an organic Pembroke College, Oxford, BYU connection, looking for decades of profound collaboration not just a series of theological, legal, humanitarian, practical conferences and events as good as they all are, but regular or regular visiting scholars. But this is the time. This is the place. Because this is his time. This is his place. Don't get me wrong, I'm not proposing another peace meal reformation, but travelling together. The problem with reformation is is that there are yet more human ideas. The shocking power of the revelation to Joseph Smith, Jr. is that here was no great German academic but an ordinary man who dared to ask God and who had the ears to listen to the answer of the Father and the Son, and the boldness to invite others on that journey and the courage to face even death. For the glory of God and his brothers and sisters, eternal welfare. Marilyn Robinson's novels drip grace. Gilead remains one of the most spiritually vibrant novels, I think, of the 20th century. She's a Christian writer who doesn't avoid struggle but finds God there. When she was speaking in Sweden, she insisted on a new venture in theology one that respects our materiality. Another theme which is worthy of scholarly exploration together, in terms of exploring the relationship of matter and God, in a way that only dialogue across traditional boundaries will bear fruit. She said, One thing theology must do now is to reconsider and reject the kind of thinking that tends to devalue humankind which is influential tendency in modern culture, that one that, not coincidentally, runs parallel to the decline of religion. This devaluing of the species, in effect, puts everything interesting about us as irrelevant to the question of our true nature. A new theology should be open to the sheer plenitude of things our mortal encounters. That is a marvel in itself. A new theology must begin from and always bear in mind the fact that there is something irreducibly thrilling about the universe, whatever account is made of it. It would be theistic to say that the capacity for abstract thought, for example, was introduced into humankind by some external agent, but that is not my kind of theism, she said. Let us say instead that this capacity must have arisen out of the transformations potential in that first particle and realized over time consistently with those potentialities, then there is a profound intrinsic relationship among all forms of being. This is the time. This is the place. This helps theology and our beautiful universities to build each other up in truth and love. Not saying, brittly, this is all I am, don't ask me to change. But saying whoever I am, whoever you are, we are the Lord's. Together, let us grow into the full stature of Christ. Finally, I want to to offer an unexpected metaphor today, which certainly wouldn't have been in this address had I not needed three and a half weeks in intensive care at the burn unit of the University of Utah Hospital. The immediate impression upon going in there is a sense of unconditional acceptance, not inappropriate for the first university founded by Brigham Young. There is a sense of entrusting each patient to participate in their own healing. A commitment to professionalism, a solidarity with those who are in pain and a massive commitment to the progression of healing. You might think that it's just about comfort and affirmation. Building a beloved community means seeing beyond the comfort. I will never forget seeing the sense of community that Professor Giovanni Lewis has built in that place and the extraordinary capacity of nurses and doctors to help patients through the most difficult, stretching, painful times. Especially moving is seeing how much it costs nurses and ward staff to help patients move sore and tight skin. One little boy, let's call him Keith, had been in that unit since the 4th of July, when an adult had thrown a firework at him causing significant injury. He would grown to love the staff, even as they were asking him to do things which hurt. Being able to love people who help us to grow, who stand with us in our pain, is a beautiful example of the nature and the cost of building a beloved community. I have to say, I wasn't the bravest patient, and I'm still not. Every day I had a phone call from the elder, Elder Holland. And I think people thought he was just my imaginary friend when I told them. (laughs) Till he turned up twice with police and security, and then a lot of people wanted to see him. I told him that I'd been very grumpy, uh, worried about losing my feet, One night, when I was at my lowest, a tiny, white-haired, blonde, five-year-old girl, a patient, let's call her Stella, came up to me as I was standing gloomily outside my room and grasped my little finger with her tiny hand and she turned me round. Now, there's a sight to see. But she made me walk around the ward with her. She wouldn't let go until i kissed the top of her head her parents and nursing staff chuckling but i can tell you that the characteristic hallmarks of god in christ were there this was indeed an angelic visitation i'd been told to turn around to shuvah metanoia repent and had been led by a little child those in a healing community build a beloved community around them, often without completely comprehending what we are doing. That, in a nutshell, is what I believe we are called to do together. After the long histories of difficulty and division and schism between Christian communities, beautiful friendships can flower and bear fruit between Christian communities. If we are taken by the finger and turned round after the pattern of the University of Utah burn unit. I have to say I'd like to be able to be more upbeat about the recovery of these feet. Without the daily support of Nurse Carrie Brown, for example, I don't know where on earth I'd be. In some ways, healing seems to be going very well, but I'm still not sure how it's going to work out. Because I, like everybody else, want to have the simple, straightforward solution which makes everything all right now that's not the pattern of anointing and sealing which I was blessed to receive. It may well be that I have to go back into hospital again and have to have some more tissue removed, perhaps even a little toe. But before I get too morose, what's a little toe between friends? <laughs> Don't get me wrong, I, I want, I'd like it on my foot if possible. But having taken the initial steps of faith, we can take steeper ones. On Saturday night a friend of mine took me to the supermarket, and while I was sitting waiting for him to get a bulb, the sun was setting in the west behind the mountains, but still illuminating the mountain tops of the Wa- Wasatch Front, the moon shining with a vibrancy of a circle of lace. And the stark horizontal light showed patterns of relationship and connection in those beautiful western mountains. It was a beautiful golden evening and I thought of the writings of a great ancient Christian, Gregory of Nyssa. One of his insights was that he saw Christian discipleship not just as something to be achieved becoming a one-off possession, that's neither scholarship nor discipleship. It is rather the process of learning to walk step by step as the road gets steeper We are more equipped to take more difficult steps, recognizing that it is an infinite ascent into the very being of the Father in the Son by the power of the Holy Spirit. This made me think of the Latter-day Saint emphasis on continuing. Joseph Smith's history of the Church echoes Gregory so closely. The nearer man approaches perfection, the clearer are his views and the greater his enjoyments, till he has overcome the evils of his life and lost every desire to sin, and, like the ancients, arrives at that point of faith where he is wrapped in the power and glory of his Maker and is caught up to dwell with him. But we consider this a station to which no man ever arrived in a moment. However long it takes to build this enduring communion between Oxford, Pembroke and BYU, I commit to journeying with you, even on these feet, however ragged they become, even if I had to walk over hot coals to get where I am now. I'm getting a bit hoarse, but I'm going to go finish. This is an opportunity to say thank you for so much care in traumatic days, in hospital and home, by so many wonderful people. Thank you for allowing me to express this honest commitment to travel with you in a richness of faith which I have not otherwise experienced. I dedicate this forum address in gratitude to God for Elder Geoffrey R. Holland my beloved friend. We love you, Elder Holland, for being committed to building a beloved community where a growth in love and understanding is possible. When I first came to General Conference, I was shocked to witness protesters shouting rude things at you outside General Conference. I thought, I'll walk over in my collar And I'll just make it clear to them that these are nice people. Don't be cross. The reaction was a baptism of fire into what the US understands as freedom of speech. (laughs) In the UK, it would have been called hate speech, okay? But nonetheless, it was embarrassing, what I was called, to hear some of what was said. But I felt I could look my hosts in the eye and stand with you as you were ridiculed. My closest friends have seen that my love for the Lord Jesus has grown exponentially because of my friendship with you, and I want to bring that to the beautifully beautifully diverse families of Christians and peoples of other faiths so that we may travel together, even across steep mountains, which will lead to our being blessed together. I have been taught so much here, and I am profoundly aware of the inadequacy of this lengthy expression, but I thank you authentically and express my love for you, and acknowledge that I am in your debt, a debt I can never repay. So thank you, and may God bless us in our journeying together.